What do George Carlin, Barack Obama, Humphrey Bogart, and Billie Holiday all have in common? Well, they all once resided on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Hi, I'm George Boraki, and this is Cityscape. A new book highlights nearly 600 notables who at one time or another lived on the Upper West Side. It's called Notable New Yorkers of Manhattan's Upper West Side, Bloomingdale and Morningside Heights. The author is Jim Mackin. He's a New York City historian and founder of Weekday Walks, which provides tours of New York City neighborhoods. Jim, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So first of all, let's define the area you cover in this book, Bloomingdale, Morningside Heights. Where is that exactly? Well, it's defined very currently from the West 90s up to about 125th Street. Historically, the Dutch knew the area as Bloemendal, probably from the West 30s all the way up to the 120s. An old Dutch word meaning blooming valley or vale of flowers, very poetic. But in modern times, and, and, and there's still vestiges of, the, of that name when it got anglicized into Bloomingdale, the Bloomingdale School of Music, Bloomingdale Branch Library, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Is there any connection to the department store at all, Bloomingdale's? No, they have their own illustrious history, the two Bloomingdale brothers. That's a topic for another day. So what inspired you to write this book and more specifically focus on this area of New York City? Well, I've been very involved with local history, a bunch of friends, amateur historians, if, if you like. And um, I started keeping um, a little database of notable people in the area. And, uh, you know, at first it was 20, 30, 40 people. Ne- next thing you know, I had 700. And to this day, I have over 1,400. And surprise, surprise, many of them are not just the Humphrey Bogards and the George Gershwins. They're, they're people of great caliber, and arguably in some cases, just notoriety, gangsters and whatnot, but absolutely fascinating people. And um, and that was my inspiration. Yeah, your book includes everyone from madams to movie stars. Yeah, sports figures, um, artists, uh, Supreme Court associate and, and chief justices, uh, presidents, foreheads of state. Um, and, and, it, and the area is arguably... Um, little less well-known than what most people know of the Upper West Side, which is typically the West 60s, 70s, and and 80s. So uh, I I felt like it needed a little more attention. How did you go about researching this book? Well, I first started out by going literally address by address. I started with some New York City directories, and if the name looked like it might have been notable, I I did some further research, but I quickly abandoned (laughs) that process because it became much easier to look at things like obituaries um, and secondary sources if people had written articles or um, books that covered the area. Um, And then eventually getting into the real, uh, you know, nitty gritty detail, just talking to people in buildings, talking to other people that kind of knew. There's a fellow, Peter Salwin, who wrote Upper West Side Story in 1989 and um, his his book is a um, is a source of a plethora of of interesting people in in the area. And Peter, like myself, is um, a rank amateur historian. Amateur historian. So let's talk about that word "notable" for a moment. What, in your eyes, does it mean to be notable? Yeah, in a in a simple sense, notable in in my mind doesn't necessarily mean accomplishment. Doesn't necessarily mean notoriety, but 
there's an overlap of values here. And, and I think the essential value is it's, it's worthy of, of, of being known or noted. So that, that can cover all the positives, all, all the negatives. Um, what I try to draw out with each of these people, and it really goes to the heart of, of your question, is something interesting about the person. It's, it's not that hard to explain, again, George Gershwin and Ira Gershwin or Ray Charles or Wilt Chamberlain. But there are people that kind of are just a little bit below the radar in terms of what we know about them. And I was so pleasantly surprised to find out many people in that category and many females, suffragists and other people, uh, other females of note, African-Americans. We have a small African-American community that used to exist on 98th and 99th Street that doesn't... um, uh, doesn't hold, isn't second fiddle to, to Harlem or to the old San Juan Hill down in the West 60s. There's some incredibly accomplished and, and notable people from, from that area. Yeah, I had never heard of that community before. It's actually referred to as the old community, right? Yeah, I, I got introduced to a fellow named Jim Terrain, who's in the book. He's no longer with us. We got together a number of times, and Jim started collecting um, the notoriety of that area um, almost from the day that he and many other people got pushed out of the neighborhood by urban renewal. And since then, and, and this is 65 years later, people who lived on those two blocks, and it's only two blocks between Columbus and Central Park West, they still get together every year and they celebrate their amazing heritage. So Jim, in his lifetime, um, pulled together all of the notable people that lived on those two blocks. And uh, the rest, as they say, is, is history. Without him, we would not know that Billie Holiday and Will Marion Cook and Burt Williams and the list goes on and on actually lived in our very neighborhood. Are the notables classified in any way in your book? They are. I, um, uh, my, my good publisher, Fordham University Press, and especially the uh, director there, Fred Nachbauer, had the foresight to say, Jim, we can't do a book of 1,400 notables. People will confuse your book with the telephone directory. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I started organizing them and rank ordering them and attributing characteristics to them. So I, at the end of the day, I decided to use a simple legend of uh, four different um, categories of people. They're either superstars, people who are at the absolute top of the game. They're plaque-worthy, which means you could literally make a case for having a plaque in front of their building, or they just need to be better known, or they're especially interesting. So all of the people in my book are, are subject to that, um, that legend arrangement. And I, and I might say of the 591 notables in the book, over 300 are plaque-worthy. The cover of your book features a who's who of superstars, including Barack Obama. That's right. He uh, lived at, in at least two places in our neighborhood. I suspect more history will uh, unveil itself in the next few years. Um, but yeah, he's, he's a proud. He was a proud resident living right down, or I'm a proud resident living right down the block from where he lived. Who are among the other superstars gracing the cover of this book? Well, Thurgood Marshall, he's a handsome man in his older years, but I think a lot of people um, don't get him on the cover right away because we've got a wonderful younger photograph of him. Um, But Rosalind Russell is there, Billie Holiday, 
if I, uh, Maya Angelou, if, if I remember correctly on the upper right hand part of the cover, there's a picture of an actress turn of the last century, Julia Marlowe, what a superstar she was. She, she was, she was the actress on Broadway, the legitimate stage from about 1905 to 1915. Uh, I'm, I'm reading a, there's only one biography of her. I'm, it was written in 1926. I'm actually reading that uh, today. So. How many rabbit holes did you go down researching this book, wanting to know more and more about these people? Well, I, I like your choice of words because it, it alludes to the fact that this can get mildly addictive, I might say. Um, uh, but since I, I read a lot, I love to do that. And um, uh, ple pleasantly surprised at um, full biographies that are available on many of the people. Now, for those that are not, obviously, you could look back on, um, you know, newspaper obituaries and various other sources. But um, it goes on and on and on. J just before the, the book went into publication, after all the editing and whatnot, I had about three or four issues that I didn't feel 100% comfortable with. So the challenge to me as the author was, well, do I take them out of the book because I'm not 100% confident that they belong at a particular address or have got a particular detail correct? Or, or do I dive back in the rabbit hole and, and, and try, try to you know, get some kind of resolution? And, and fortunately, I did. Nina Simone was one example like that. Um, couldn't establish with confidence that she looked at her particular address, but I, but I nailed it. I actually got it at the last minute. What I love about the book is that it's so easy to digest the information. It's just enough to really wet your whistle and understand who these people were and why they are notable. Yeah, I, I realize that if you want to read about most of these people, you could you could go to other sources and, and in many cases a, a complete book. But I, I tried to eke um, what I thought was particularly interesting and yet still cover the essentials. I've received a few comments from people, I guess I shouldn't be surprised at this, that when they acquired the book, they simply opened to the page of their address. They found their address or their street, and then they either went forward or backwards ge geographically, which seems to be committing some sort of a sin. <laughs> you know, it seems like you should read, I, I do, I'm kind of um, neurotic about this. I typically read a book from start to finish. And so I'm very careful about what books I start because I, I won't feel comfortable. It's almost like, like running, you know, George, you, once, you, <laughs> once you set a goal, you want to kind of go and do it. So Yes, I know that as a marathoner myself, and I know you too are a marathoner. Does the book only include people who passed on or formerly lived in the neighborhood, or does it also include current notables? It's a very insightful and nuanced question. Um, obviously, in the case of President Obama, for example, he's still with us, and yet he lived in the neighborhood. Um, there's a few other examples. I really wanted to get Peter Schickley in the book. He's just a personal favorite of mine. But he's, he's still alive and, and, in fact, lives in the neighborhood. But I, I didn't want to violate anybody's privacy. So I don't, um, the book doesn't have his current address, but uh, does have an address where he had lived previously. So, the, indeed, there are people in the book who are still alive. But um, if, if you're looking to see where people live today, um, you won't find them. So that being said, Jim, you have opportunity to expand upon this book when people move out of the neighborhood or unfortunately pass on. 
That's right. If we want to be slightly nefarious, George, I could say that every time somebody dies, I, 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 I scan the obituary to see if there was a prayer in hell that they'd lived in the neighborhood. <laughs> and then I hunt it down. So, uh, but I'm also finding people who, um, you know, regardless of a current obituary, for example, uh, live in the neighborhood. Uh, um, Associate Justice Neil Gorich, for example, went to Columbia, so I figured he had to live in the neighborhood. But I didn't get an address on that until very, very recently, thanks to a fellow friend, author, historian. So who else are among your favorite notable New Yorkers featured in this book? Well, there are a couple of odd people. Um, right down the block from me, this is wholly coincidental. I don't, I don't push my building or my block or anything, but right down the block from me was a performer, Nick Long Jr., if you ever get a chance, look at the very few YouTubes of him. He was a Broadway dancer and more than that, an athlete of the first order. Uh, one of the two Nicholas brothers are in the book. You may recognize those as tap dancers. They're, they're in a lot of movies from the 30s and 40s. And they do one very famous scene. I, I know it inspired uh, Fred Astaire. Uh, where they dance over jazz perform jazz musicians when they're playing their solo pieces in a big band orchestra. Well, Nicholas Long Jr. puts that to shame because he, in, in one scene, which you can see on the YouTube, he runs across the stage and jumps over eight chorus people, chorus girls. In another scene, he does standing broad jumps over six of them in a row. He was just incredibly athletic. His parents were vaudevillians. Um, he died a little bit too early, unfortunately. He died on the uh, Henry Hudson Parkway, the Selma River Parkway in the Bronx. Um, but he's amazing. Harriet Brooks is another one. She was a um, Barnard professor, uh, probably the first nuclear physicist in the United States, personal friends with Marie Curie, Sir Ernest Rutherford, even Maxim Gorky. And when she announced to her dean at Barnard at the time, and I think we're talking 1904, five or six, she said, well, I'm engaged. And the dean said, well, then you can't teach here anymore. In those days, a woman wasn't allowed to do that. So she then moves back to a hometown of Montreal, Canada, and is kind of forgotten in history. Uh, again, the first female nuclear physicist in the United States lost to history. Um, and there are other stories like that in, in the book. Uh, another favorite one, of course, is, is um, uh, and, um, Eleanor Smith. She, she holds a record, which I'm sure will, will never be broken. She's that woman who in 1926, I think it was, flew under all four bridges over the East River. <laughs> And there's many other remarkable things about her because she's in that early uh, group of uh, barnstormers. But it, it took the uh, intercession of the mayor at the time to get her flying license back. And the story goes on and on. I mean, it's just incredible. She wound up uh, marrying a, a gentleman. He might have been a Fordham grad, I think, uh, who was a, uh, either a state assemblyman or state senator. Or how about the largest person in the world, George Auger, who came from England. And they actually called him the Cardiff Giant because he came from Cardiff, not, not like the U.S. Cardiff Giant, which was kind of a, a, a hoax that was perpetrated upstate New York. But this fellow wound up coming to the United States and, and worked in some of the large circuses and whatnot, but lived in our neighborhood on Manhattan Avenue 
And at eight feet four, if that number is correct, they thought he was the largest person in the world. Actually, he was uh, in England assigned to the uh, personal duty of Queen Victoria, who who loved him. Jim, if you only had two seats at your dinner table, you were throwing a dinner party and there were only two chairs, empty chairs. You can invite two of the people in this book over to ask some questions, have a meal. Who would that be? Oh, I would say Frederick de Peister. Not too many people will um, maybe recognize that name, but um, uh, he, he represents the old Dutch heritage of New York City generally. The de Peisters and the Watts and Leaks, if you know Leak and Watts Orphanage, the first institution over the borderline of the Bronx and Yonkers. Um, he's all connected to that. He was also president of the New York Historical Society for a while. I, I do a fair amount of volunteer work there. Um, and then he was a large landowner in this area. It would be fascinating to talk to him because he's got land just before we transition into a um, uh, like a growing community with apartment buildings and, and whatnot. In fact, he hosted the 100th anniversary of the Battle of Harlem Heights Harlem Heights was the predecessor name to Morningside Heights. And um, uh, thousands of people came to his mansion and property for the festivities for that 100th anniversary of that Battle of Harlem Heights. So that would be uh, absolutely fascinating to, um, you know, sp- speak with him. Um, Peter Shickley would, would be another one. I, I could probably make a longer list, but... Um, uh, he, he's just fascinating for the, all that he does. He, he would take a riff in a Beatles song or Iron Maiden or, or Fountains of Wayne or wherever he would grab it from and, and make a whole show out of what's happening there, the combination of um, a rhythm pattern or notes or melody or, or whatever. Um, incidentally, we, we, have the, we have a number of lyricist composers in our area, not just George and Ira Gershwin, but, but many others. And even the fella who gives rise to the very word, or very phrase, Tin Pan Alley, lived in our area. So um, also it's a deep, rich musical history. And I'm not even touching upon classical music. We, we had some of the greatest opera singers and musical conductors uh, in the world living in this area. So some, some of this is, um, and I, I apologize for digressing too much, but there's an, always been an east side, west side dichotomy in Manhattan. And the West Side has always been blessed with um, a concentration of the arts, um, miscellaneous ethnic groups, Irish, German, Jewish, Spanish, African-American, et cetera. And the East Side, historically, as we know, has, has been a little more, um, uh, you know, a little more um, uh, vanilla, uh, so to speak, you know, more money, et, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a subtle thing, and it's probably changed these days, but uh, that's what gave rise to so many notables in the area. Yeah, I was going to ask the question, are there any characteristics of this area of New York City that you would say help to fuel people's success and or notoriety? I think this is somebody's future doctoral dissertation, but for the moment, it's some combination of the institutional character, Columbia Teachers College, Union Theological, Jewish Theological, Juilliard, Manhattan School of Music, all being resident here, and many other institutions that um, dealt with the blind and retired uh, or elderly people, et cetera. Um, The ethnic character means lots of turnover, and lots of mixing. So I think that that's, that's part of it. Um, 
And then I think even the topography, the, the height upon which the area sits, it's, it's not the highest point in Manhattan, that's further up in Washington Heights, but it's high up enough to give it kind of a special status. And it's one of the reasons why the area got developed residentially and commercially later than other areas of, of Manhattan. So all of those factors, I think, um, will be the starting point for whoever writes the dissertation or, or book on that very question. What else about the neighborhoods of Bloomingdale, Morningside Heights, do you find most fascinating? Well, it's, it's still very dynamic today. It's kind of discovering its rich history. My, my book, notwithstanding, um, there's almost a groundswell of interest. We have a local Bloomingdale neighborhood his, his history group. We also have a Morningside Heights um, uh, Coalition Committee. Um, Columbia has wonderful history. A good friend of mine, Professor Bob McKay, has written the book on Columbia's history. Stan Columbia has also written the history on Columbia's engineering school, second oldest in the country. And he recently this year published the, the, the book on Barnard's history, which is fascinating. But beyond that, the neighborhood hasn't been touched much in terms of history. And now people are discovering that for the first time. Walking through here, and we do a lot of walking tours, um, it, it, it's endless in terms of showing it off and finding new things. Um, there's some infrastructural stuff which has profound influence on our history. The Croton Aqueduct comes through here. The Bloomingdale Road, which got built in from 1703 to 1708, comes up and ends abruptly here. In, um, at 115th Street. These things have sweeping implications. Um, we have blocks where you look down to the Hudson. Um, we have high points. Um, uh, we, we have Valley. Morningside Park is below street level. That speaks volumes about what's called Manhattan Valley, part of the neighborhood. So... Riverside Drive gets its own chapter in this book, right? Yeah, boy, I, I could. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a champion of Riverside Drive. It, it has probably the third, fourth, or fifth largest stand of um, American elm trees, which you know are blighted. It has the world famous M4 and M5 buses, are arguably the best bus routes in the entire city in terms of um, you know just showing off the area. Um, the drive itself undulates. It not only curves, and in fact, it, it creates um, a challenge for architects. They've got a design, and there's a bunch of buildings that have curvature to them, both convex and concave. Where else do you have that? I mean, we know there are curved books and like Bath, uh, uh, curved buildings in Bath, England, France, uh, Paris, etc., but Riverside Drive kind of gives rise to these things. But also Riverside Drive undulates. It goes up. It goes down. So it creates like a, 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 an endless visual. <laughs> I mean, it's just fascinating in so many respects. And it had a fair share of mansions in its day. There's only about three or four that are left, left over. But um, it could have been the, the, the Mansion Street of the city, which I think eventually became Fifth Avenue. But every, everything about it just makes it um, incredibly interesting. If someone wanted to set out on foot to explore these neighborhoods using your book, where would you suggest they start? Is there a right place to start? There's no one particular place, but if, if you walk just across 110th Street, you would see tremendous variety. If you wanted to start West 91st or West 92nd, 
you'd get overwhelmed by the number of uh, notable people that are concentrated in that area. Um, if you got further up any part of Riverside Drive, I'd highly recommend Riverside Drive north of um, say 110th Street because uh, some of the buildings there, when you, when you get to see the works of the great architects, Gaetan Aiello and Schwartz and Gross, people will be dazzled by that. So um, no one particular place, there's a bunch of places, even West End Avenue, when West End Avenue got landmarked in the last few years in a couple of different iterations, I might add, part of the rationale for landmarking it was it's a very special street in in that its apartment buildings make it um, make a feeling make a give it a tenor that no other street in the city has there's certainly other, other wonderful apartment buildings on fifth avenue park avenue grand concourse in the bronx is is i think world renowned for the art deco stuff but but west end avenue has a certain feel to it um, which justifies it, its attention in landmarking. Should we have more plaques on buildings, Jim, indicating who resided in these buildings? I'm in the process of uh, writing some um, articles about um, uh, plaques for people versus, not, not so much versus people, versus buildings. We should absolutely respect our buildings and honor their heritage. Uh, but I think there's a fair amount of attention on buildings these days. And, of, of course, much of that emanates from um, the downfall of um, Penn Station. Um, but we, we could easily justify having plaques for many, 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 many people. And um, part of my argument that goes with this is, is sometimes we're too Manhattan-centric and sometimes we're too centric on either Fifth Avenue or the village or places where we know very famous people have lived. But neighborhoods like mine and, 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 and in all the boroughs, Bronx, Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, they, they all tend to get underrepresented uh, represented for reasons that I think we all know about. I know you are originally from Queens, right? That's right. Yeah, Flushing. How long have you been in this neighborhood now? Uh, since 89. And on the Upper West Side since 71. What's it been like for you, Jim, to have a book come out in the midst of a pandemic? Uh, interesting, because um, certain challenges. I'd like to think the book is timeless in, in the sense that um, there's no direct competition for it. Any, anything that writes about this area is, is kind of different. Um, uh, either it writes about architecture or, or kind of covers this area as a, as a section in, a, in another book. Um, so in that sense, I think the book will do well uh, for, for quite a while. But every new book should have a book launch. So we did a book launch outdoors right in the middle of Amsterdam Avenue, th thanks to my friendly owners and the wonderful waitresses at the world famous Hungarian pastry shop where many, many notable books have been written. And, and in fact, the covers of those books are up on the wall as, as mine will be. Uh, but we did that last Saturday right in front of the Hungarian pastry shop in the middle of Amsterdam Avenue. Um, and we had more than 50 people come by to get the book, get it signed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I was just in my glory uh, doing that. But but I realized the pan pandemic's going to be with us for a while. So there's a lot of Zooming that's gone on. I think I've already done four Zooms that um, uh, promote the book, and there'll there'll be more of those. Um, and and everybody, a lot of people are asking for tours, you know, tours either with the book or just generally in the neighborhood. Um, a couple of different um, 
clubs, National Arts Club and Cosmopolitan Club have, have talked about either tours or talks uh, at their facility. So there'll, there'll be more of those things coming up. Again, the timeless nature of the book gives me the luxury of just having a longer view on, um, on, on the book itself. Well, Jim, you yourself fit into a category of being a notable New Yorker who lives in this neighborhood. If you had to write your own entry, what does that include? Well, I'd, I'd like to think that it's uh, just this natural love of history which spurs me on. I'm sure, I, I hope to uh, share conversations with other historians. A good friend of mine, Matthew Spady, has written a wonderful history of Audubon Park, about 40 blocks north of here. I'm going to rattle off some other notable things about you because you didn't do it. You ran five marathons, including the first ever New York City marathon through the five boroughs in 1976, and the last New York City marathon that was run entirely in Central Park in 1975. How incredible is that? Yeah, I, and then with, with long-distance running, you know, George, I, get, I have the confidence that I could run anywhere to check something out. <laughs> Today, you could look at the front of a building or a corner on, um, you know, Google Maps or, you know, Google whatever. Uh, but I still do that. I'll still even occasionally run to, like, as far as the South Bronx to look at something. A lot of runs into Harlem to look at sites of where famous people lived and famous things happened. Jim Mackin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Once again, the book is Notable New Yorkers of Manhattan's Upper West Side, Bloomingdale and Morningside Heights. It's out now from Fordham University Press. The author is New York City historian and founder of Weekday Walks, Jim Mackin. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Our producer is Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.